This is Live at Politics and Prose, a program from Slate and Politics and Prose Bookstore in Washington, D.C., featuring some of today's best writers and top thinkers. I hope she'll forgive me for calling her a superstar journalist, but Sarah Kenzior is a superstar journalist. Uh, she's a beloved Twitter presence, a regular commentator on local, local, national, global politics for outlets like Globe and Mail, MSNBC, NPR, the BBC, the list goes on and on. The pieces in, in her book, The View from Flyover Country, were written for Al Jazeera English between 2012 and 2014. Uh, when initially compiled as an ebook, they became a bestseller in 2015. And uh, now in paperback form, uh, they serve as a key marker of the pre-Trump presidency moment and at the same time show all the problems that have continued and increased since late 2016. Uh, it's, in my mind, also just a treasure as a very rare book by a journalist that's actually comprised of journalism stock and trade, the short form piece. Uh, so also everyone, I don't want to sound crass about this, but the book is $12.99, so please buy a copy. Um, so many political tell-alls and books about the state of the world are going to cost you something like $30. I work at a bookstore, so please do buy those as well. <laughs> but there's a chance, a chance that those uh, claims and revelations in those books might not seem as revelatory even by the time that the paperback comes out, whereas these pieces have really stood the test of time for several years now. Uh, they're as convincing a diagnosis of where the United States lies right now as you're likely to find anywhere. And so please help me in welcoming Sarah Kenzior to Politics and Prose. Hello. Hello. Is this everybody working? here okay back there as well? And just touch. Uh, low there. Um, anyway, uh, the subtitle of your book uh, is Dispatches from the Forgotten America. So you've also mentioned the term uh, neglected America. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to know your thoughts on the difference between those two terms and what they each mean to you right now. Right. I think um, neglected America or abandoned America is probably a more apt term um, for what I'm talking about, because that term forces people to have accountability for the sorts of issues I discuss in the book. Um, you know, this book covers a lot of ground. It talks about politics, it talks about the economy, it talks about media. But the main thing um, that it discusses is the erosion of uh, social trust and the breakdown of institutions in America in general. And those things don't just happen magically. There are people who are responsible for that. There are people who could have helped fix that. There are people who need to be held accountable for that. And that's why I think neglected um, is better. And also, of course, Trump tried to co-opt this uh, forgotten people narrative. It's a very misleading one. And, uh, you know, I think he's using it in a damaging way. So, I mean, that speaks a lot to your focus on specifics in your writing. I think your writing is so good because it really draws on specifics and doesn't, you know, blow up certain terms into catchphrases as much as a lot of people tend to. I mean, I would wonder if you could talk a little bit about terms like the white working class and hashtag resistance and, and things that have become such a uh, force in the culture now, but seem to say completely different things to different people to the point where they might not even mean anything. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, and I've never been asked that, so I'm glad you brought that up. 
you know, I don't like jargon in general. I came out of academia. Um, I got a PhD. I studied authoritarian states in the former Soviet Union, which came in very handy, unfortunately, uh, in the 2016 <laughs> election. But, you know, as an academic, um, you know, we had those same kind of issues where you would have this terminology that was, you know, either made the uh, issue too oblique, it made it harder for people to process, it was used in different ways, it was kind of thrown out there to show how much you know. I like to write just clearly and just say what I'm thinking about stuff and if there's like you know a question or an issue somebody wants to know about um, I'll just say it and I think you know in terms of this, the terms you brought up um, we're dealing with new problems we're dealing with a kind of propaganda or alternative facts uh, as the government uh, likes to call it alternative facts itself is an example of those kind of damaging catchphrases um, that are bandied about in order to um, obfuscate deeper corruption deeper structural problems White working class uh, is a term that really frustrates me, along with economic anxiety, because I think that um, you know there really is economic anxiety. There really is a serious problem of that that doesn't translate automatically into a vote for Trump or a justification of racism, because the economic anxiety is not just felt by the white working class; it's felt by the vast majority of the entire country, um, except for you know a very small elite that feels secure in their financial position. Yet somehow, black and Hispanic and other non-white voters did not vote for Trump. So I've been frustrated by you know, people putting that out there as kind of the main reason for Trump's win. Um, and in general, I think when you see any kind of term like that, uh, you know, look at the specifics, look at regional dynamics, look at different localities and different people, and above all, ask people what they think about stuff. Don't assume you know about everybody. Don't you know, generalize about whole regions, because there's always different stories to be told. Yes, I, like you said, a lot of that specificity comes down to place. And you do write a whole lot about where you are from. You're from St. Louis. Um, and so I uh, was wondering if you, you could talk to us about where you live and, and what it looks like living there versus what you would hear about it from elsewhere in the world if you feel like you're hearing about it at all elsewhere in the world. Yeah, I mean, you know, you hear about St. Louis when something really bad happens, when there's a tornado, when there's the Ferguson uprising and police brutality, when there's the election. And now tonight, uh, my government is, uh, my governor is uh, undergoing impeachment, possibly, if we're lucky. So that's the kind of thing um, that happens in St. Louis. That's the kind of thing that happens in Missouri. Um, but, you know, on a day-to-day -day level, it's not quite so dramatic. I tend to notice things you know I've been on this book tour where I've gone to New York and LA and now I'm here in DC and you know I feel like I'm like Katniss coming out of District 12 going to the Capitol you know it, it's just such a stark dynamic you know like if you go to St. Louis like first of all St. Louis is not the hellhole um, that everybody thinks it is in, in some ways it is but um, like many cities it, it feels like it's about 12 different cities wrapped into one and there's all these different populations different dynamics different neighborhoods but what you do see more pervasively in a place like St. Louis is a sense of abandonment and of economic despair and economic decay. You see a lot of vacant lots. You see a lot of empty malls. You see a lot of houses in entire neighborhoods that are just crumbling. And you see people on the ground going to those houses, taking bricks so they could sell them, finding copper so they could sell them. And that's a very characteristic thing of a place like St. Louis that has been struggling economically for a very, very long time. And then I come places like here where, you know, the rent 
blows my mind. The, the cost of a meal blows my mind. And I feel like you get the flip side of this. You get an unaffordability. You get elitism. You get opportunity hoarding. You get you know jobs that are extremely powerful in media and politics. You know It's this giant hub of power. But only a certain kind of class of people are able to access those positions nowadays because they require unpaid labor. They require expensive degrees. And so that's the difference. And so we sort of have, you know, I don't want to say two Americas. I kind of hate the way that that's used. But, you know, there's the, there's the America of St. Louis where it's real cheap, but, you know, good luck finding a job. And then there's the America of D.C. where there are a lot of interesting, powerful jobs, but good luck finding one that will pay your bills unless you come from a wealthy family. And that is the frustration. That's America as a whole right now is this economic inequality, um, you know, this, this sort of sense of um, futurelessness that, that unfortunately I think has taken hold and did contribute to the election results. I wonder, based on that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, there's the second essay in the book is actually called Expensive Cities Are Killing Creativity. I wondered if you could talk about that piece a little bit and, and where that came from. Right. I wrote that um, in 2013, and I think the problems I laid out on it, unfortunately, have gotten worse. Um, I was talking about New York in particular, um, where I did live for a, a few years in the early 2000s before I was like, well, it's too expensive and I, I've got to go. Um, but, you know, it's it used to be a place where artists and writers and creative people would go find like-minded colleagues and, you know, have the kind of freedom to produce really interesting and innovative work. And I think what's happened in these very expensive cities is that people are so afraid to fail um, that they become afraid to experiment. And the reason they're afraid to fail is because if you lose your job, if your rent is like $2,000 or $3,000 a month, you know, one failure can just land you in complete financial despair. In St. Louis, it, it takes longer to go broke. I mean, it happens. It happens to a lot of us. It nearly happened to me. Um, but, you know, there is a sense, there is a, a creativity and a vitality um, that I feel in, in cities like St. Louis where people are able to be more creative. In part, we also just don't have the spotlight on it. There's this misperception that cities like mine don't have intellectuals, don't have artists, don't have musicians. I think during Ferguson, unfortunately, finally, people realize, you know, we have a culture, you know, we have our own writers, we have, you know, rappers, we have musicians, we have all this stuff, and it should be looked at as just as vital um, to American culture as, as stuff coming out of the coastal cities. But yeah, um, you know, that it, it reflects the same dichotomy that I was referring to before. So much of your writing is about economic disparity, um, specifically in, in some cases, the way that the cost of higher education locks people into or out of jobs but uh or out of the conversation at large as well and i i wondered if you could talk about not just how that impacted the last election but there's there's a great um there's a great piece in the book where you you talk to a friend who is a friend from academia who mentions what if jstor which is you know a big academic uh, database for articles what if jstor were public and that not just you know, it doesn't just keep people who are not in academia out, but it also makes experts hard. It's hard for them to get what they n think others need to hear out. So I wondered if you could talk about um, 
the nature of academia in that sense. Yeah, I mean, everything you're, you're describing refers to this real insularity um, of academic culture. And, you know, I have, I have articles in the book um, about, you know, regular college degrees, but also about graduate degrees because I had come out of my PhD program before. In terms of JSTOR, um, you know, what he's referring to is this paywall process where when academics produce their research, um, which is often very helpful, you know, research on things like widespread corruption, how democracies become kleptocracies, you know, things that are very useful to know and get some social science guidance on that are behind paywalls. Um, and these companies will charge you $20, $30 per article. I mean, this is like a time where people don't want to pay like a buck to get the Washington Post. So it's very unlikely that anybody is going to, you know, shell out for academic work that has value. I do think that since I wrote that essay, that's changed a little. I think that you're seeing more um, social scientists and academics in general participating in the public sphere, not trying to hide their work. Uh, the incentive to hiding the work was to have this insularity, to have this um, sense of exclusivity, like we're up here, we are the, you know, academic intellectuals, and you, you know, the mere plebeian public cannot possibly understand our words. And, you know, I've always um, rejected that idea. And then the other, you know, aspect of education and this exclusivity is, of course, the cost. And that's something that I think pretty much anybody, you know, under the age of like 45 has been struggling with. You know, most people who went to school have massive debt, and that debt is getting more and more exponential every year. And I've been waiting uh, for this higher education bubble to pop. I think it's going to pop now that, you know, my generation um, and people a little older than me are having children approaching college age. And what they found is that while the lack of a college degree might prevent you from getting a job, a college degree itself is not a path to a guaranteed job. It is usually a path to guaranteed debt. And so you have people who have not been able to procure employment to pay off that debt, and they're still paying it, now having children who are about to go to college, and then they'll have to take out debt that the parent will probably take on, so they'll have double the debt. And then the child has a very uncertain future in this America. And we're kind of approaching this point, um, and that's when I wonder if, if the whole system well, I've been wondering if the whole system's going to blow in a number of respects um, for a number of different reasons and in a number of horrifying ways. But in terms of higher education, I think it's a bit of a chickens coming home to roost situation. I wonder if, based on that, if you could talk a little bit about the nature of labor organizing in the country today. I mean, I've been kind of lightly following the efforts of journalists to organize, but also, uh, obviously, there have been many, many uh, teacher strikes recently that have been rising and rising. Uh, and I, I wondered if you've been following any of that where you live, but also in the nation at large. Yeah, definitely following where I live, because in Missouri, uh, they just arrested about 80 people who were striking on labor issues in Jefferson City. And this is pretty unusual. Um, this is something that's alarming me in the era of Trump, because I covered the labor wage movement, um, you know, what most people know as Fight for 15, the, um, you know, mostly fast food or service worker strike movement, for a long time. And I've been to a lot of these protests um, in Missouri, and very few people were ever arrested. Usually the police would kind of stand by. The the police in Missouri can be absolutely brutal, as I think everyone has seen on cable news. But that brutality is usually directed at anti-police brutality protests, where, of course, they're denying how brutal they are by tear-gassing people and hitting them with batons. Um, they usually don't crack down on you know, fast food workers and nurses and low-wage workers who are striking. 
That's what they're starting to do now uh, in the era of Trump. And so that alarms me. I do think that, um, you know, all these decades, and especially now we're on basically the 10th anniversary of the Great Recession, have led to a feeling of economic despair that has increased labor participation, has made organized labor something that wasn't just a memory from our grandparents' era, but something we really need. People are recognizing the value of unions. They're reclaiming that right. Um, they were really starting to work in organized in that direction. And, and you're seeing it, you know, in these teacher strikes, which of course, again, are in quote, you know, red states. And I, I'm glad people sort of recognize that a red state is not like what you think it is. You know, I live in Missouri and we have people who are fighting, you know, for these rights. It's a mix of people. I think every state is basically um, a purple state. I wish that these protests were covered more, the teachers' protests. Um, I think they're very significant. You know, I feel that way about all the protests that have happened uh, since, well, before Trump came to power, but especially since, you know, these historic protests, like the Women's March, which again is kind of played down. I feel like when women take to the streets, it's not appreciated that much. And most service workers are women, most teachers are women, and you know, hopefully people will give this the coverage and the respect that it deserves. I was wondering if, if in the years leading up to the last presidential election, you saw any particular moments that seemed like bellwethers of what was ahead, um, even if that doesn't necessarily mean um, Trump becoming president, but of the times where we're living in, I'm thinking of Occupy, uh, Occupy Wall Street or any anything else. I was wondering if there. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we had this kind of perfect storm that arrived with the election of Obama, but was not caused by the election of Obama, where you have the recession in 2008, uh, you have Facebook and social media also kind of taking the country by storm in 2008, and you have uh, you know two wars uh, that we're now trying to get out of at around 2008, and I feel like the, the breakdown of the economy and the lack of any accountability or punishment for those who tanked the economy was incredibly significant. That's what led to Occupy. That frustration is still there because this, you know, these same people, they're now in the Trump administration. Uh, they now have governmental power. In addition to just corporate power, uh, I think that technology changed in a way that, you know, I, I started out studying digital media in authoritarian states, and it was at a time <clears throat> when people were very optimistic about it. They thought, you know, this is the Facebook revolution, this is the Twitter revolution, like all these dictatorships are going to be freed. And I was looking at Uzbekistan, and I was watching how the dictatorship used social media, and especially um, not so much in Uzbekistan, which is very, very repressive, but in countries like Russia or Azerbaijan, where what the government was doing was realizing the utility of the internet for propaganda and for social control through manipulation instead of through censorship. They were leaving the internet just open enough uh, to, to manipulate the population and bombard them with propaganda. And I think we've seen those same tactics um, in the election. They're very transferable. We're in a globalized economy. Um, and then I think you have the aftermath of the wars, which have led to uh, you know, merited erosion in institutional trust. We went to war on a lie. We went to war on falsified information. And we're still dealing with that. You know, there's the famous quote from Karl Rove about how we invent reality. You know, you're, we're history's you know, directors or actors, and you're just like little pawns in our game. Like, he, that's not the exact quote, although the exact quote is in the book, so by the book. Um, but, you know, he, he just flat out 
said this, and this was over well over a decade ago, I think this was in 2004, that's the philosophy of uh, the most extreme people in the Bush administration. It's definitely the philosophy of the Trump administration. It's one that disempowers people and requires no accountability and no responsibility uh, from elites. And that's very dangerous. That's a philosophy you should just always, always reject because that's the philosophy that, that can lead you into outright autocracy. So kind of on, on that note, I was actually wondering on a personal level how you transitioned from academia into journalism um, and, and how the things that you were studying in terms of authoritarianism across the world and throughout history um, transitioned into your covering local politics, national politics, etc. It's a you know real smooth ride from Uzbekistan to Missouri, you know. <laughs> but I mean, I you know I got my PhD, uh, kind of realized I didn't like academia for a variety of reasons. You know, one is this paywall stuff. I always wrote for the public. I wanted people to actually read my work and find it useful, which is not a valued uh, quality in academia. Um, there also weren't any jobs. Uh, it <laughs> wiped out the academic job market. My field of anthropology lost about 50% of its positions in 2008, and they never came back. And so what most people do in academia is they work as adjuncts, uh, which is like professors that get paid by the course, usually about $2,000, $3,000. If you're lucky, you're making about $20,000 a year teaching all the time. I had two small children. Um, my babysitting costs would have outweighed doing that. So I just was like, this is not a career for me. Um, and I had been recruited at that time to write for a variety of places, uh, including Al Jazeera English, uh, where my editor just gave me you know, unparalleled freedom to write about whatever I wanted. And so I started out writing about Central Asia, but then, you know, these issues of corruption uh, and injustice um, and politics and technology that I was studying in Central Asia were applicable um, to the United States. And so I said, you know, can I pitch some pieces about the US? Like, I want to write about these institutional, you know, breakdown that I'm seeing on the ground here, especially in a place like St. Louis, especially in a state like Missouri um, that's being neglected. You know, I was noticing this incredible discrepancy between where I lived and when I would come visit a place like DC or New York. And I don't mean that to say like everyone in New York and DC is having a fun, easy time because I don't think that's the case. I just think we have different types um, of problems. And so, you know, he uh, gave me free reign and, you know, I, I basically got to write <laughs> whatever I wanted for two and a half years until ironically Al Jazeera um, became an American outlet. And then suddenly they were like, no, this is too out there, these critiques of America you're making. And so I left. Um, but then I moved on to, to better, better places. So, so uh, by the time that this came out as an ebook. I mean, obviously, it, it caught on at that time, and I was wondering, um, since then, how have how has your role as a journalist, but also as a uh, social media presence, how has that um, caught on? I, I guess. I, I mean, that's kind of a hard question for yourself yeah. to answer, but. Well, it's, you know, it's been an interesting few years. Um, you know, like what I'm kind of known for now is my desperate and futile attempt uh, throughout 2015 and 2016 to convince the country that Donald Trump was a viable candidate, that he was going to win the primary, that he had a good chance of winning the general, and that if he won, he was going to rule in the vein of a Central Asian autocrat. About two and a half years ago, I wrote an article called Trump Minbashi, which is a nod to 
Turkmenbashi, <laughs> the former uh, megalomaniac dictator of Turkmenistan, uh, you know where I kind of ran down the parallels. And the main par parallel is kleptocracy, is the abuse of executive um, position to enhance your personal wealth. I don't know why it was such a leap for people to realize that Trump, with his many bankruptcies, open mafia ties, and constant shakedowns and open threats that he would made on Twitter, would behave like a kleptocrat, would behave like an autocrat. But people had this faith um, in checks and balances and in all these institutions that I had spent years documenting the demise of. So I thought, you know, one, people are very desperate. When, pe when people feel desperate, they often will turn to a demagogue. When the demagogue is not vetted by the news media, which definitely happened with Trump, then they're more likely to believe all his false promises and lies. Like You have no idea how many people I know in Missouri voted for Trump because they believed his image on The Apprentice. I mean, it wasn't always like the most well thought out decision, but that's the information they were getting. They weren't getting information about Russia or the mafia or you know, things that they needed to know. That was being held back by the press. Um, and so, yeah, that's that unfortunately uh, made me a I guess a popular figure online, like kind of a, you know, someone said I was like Cassandra of Trump land or, you know, your account terrifies me, but I like it. Or, you know, you give me nightmares, but I can't live without you. I mean, it's, it's been really, really strange. I think I'm the first Uzbekistan specialist to go on Seth Meyers. So, you know, <laughs> yay, PhD. I mean, everyone was like, what are you going to do with this PhD, Sarah? And obviously the answer was I will use my knowledge of Uzbekistan to examine the presidency of Kremlin asset Donald Trump once he wins the election. I mean, yeah, you know, things never turn out how they'll seem. So I'll just, maybe that's my optimistic note for the night. I think I need to leave one at some point, but yeah. So. If people want to start winding up behind the, uh, the microphones on either side, we'll be moving to the audience Q&A in just a moment. Um, I wanted to ask about the dedication of your book, uh, which is very simple. It's just dedicated to the kids. Is that your kids? It's, or is that it's everyone's. Kids? Well, I mean, when people ask me like what I do, and it sounds so corny, you know, but I mean it. Like, um, you know, I, I do what I do. I try to shed light on these issues, on those problems, on this corruption for the next generation, uh, because I don't really think that my generation will necessarily see positive change, but I think maybe the next generation will. Um, and so I want a better life for them. I don't think that you can solve a problem unless you point it out. So I feel obligated to try to fight on their behalf and that means my kids but it also means you know my nieces and nephews and it means anyone's kids you know when i go to my kids elementary school and i see all these children who are you know they see through this crap i mean they're in elementary school but they know this is abnormal it doesn't take like a super genius to to look at trump and know that something is awry just in the way that he he speaks he presents himself he's you know, at the least not presidential i'm not quite sure why so many of our politicians and media have not been able to pick up on what fourth and fifth graders pick up on you know then you see the same thing um with a lot of the younger protests I saw this in Ferguson. I saw a lot of youth standing up then. I, you certainly see it in the anti-gun violence movement, which is youth-led. And so I think that, you know, there, there's always a chance if people are willing to fight. And so, you know, if, if I want this, I don't know, something to come out of this book, I'd like it to just be a useful guide to some things that have broken down. It doesn't mean they'll be broken down forever, but it does mean it requires work and knowledge to build them back up. There's no saviors. There's no like magic wand that's going to come and make things better. But people, if they work together, I think there is the possibility that that can happen. So we'll start moving to audience Q&A. We're going to alternate between these microphones. We'll start over here and then move to you right over here. 
Thank you, sir. Your last remark actually feeds into my question. My name is Bob Tansy. I work in nature conservation, but I had an earlier career as a diplomat, and I lived in Turkmenistan oh. from 2002 to 2004. I Glory actually days of Turkmenbashi. <laughs> I actually spoke Turkmen. I had a personal relationship with the Turkmenbashi. It was troubled. Mm -hmm. But I, I wanted to ask you, uh, more in a, a spiritual sense, uh, my whole adult life I've been a Mahayana Buddhist. I believe in things like the dignity of everybody, interconnectedness. And, and what are you seeing in terms of what people believe kind of at that level and where there may be hope going forward in terms of individual and community values underlying uh, something better than maybe what we're seeing right now. Yeah, I think, you know, that's a personal question. I just have to say I'm relieved that your spiritual question is not about the Ruknama, but um, <laughs> the joke, sorry. Uh, but, you know, I, I think everyone, they follow their own path. I mean, we've obviously had a lot of discussion in this country about religiosity, piety, uh, the exploitation of piety by people like Mike Pence. But there's also you know, spirituality as a positive force is something that can bring people together. I do think that, you know, community is important. Whenever people are asking me, like, oh, my God, everything's awful. What do I do? I, I always stress, you know, look locally. Like, don't just try to change things on a big national level. Take on these enormous problems. There are ways you can make concrete differences in people's lives if you reach out to your own community and approach them with compassion and empathy. And I think, you know, that, that if anything, is the road forward. Hi, Sarah. My name is Janelle. Um, I had a question to ask you um, in regards to how you've covered Trump's autocratic tendencies. I'm curious to know, um, let's say hypothetically he were to be the president for eight years. <laughs> Impeach me. <laughs> what do you think the probability of, um, what do you think the probability would be of him trying to say, you know, hey, I've been president for eight years. How about I extend it longer considering all his recent joking about that? Yeah, I, I think you should take those jokes seriously. Um, the main reason I think Trump would not extend the term is because I think he might die before, because he's just an old guy with like terrible health habits. And I also think it's possible that uh, people might be frustrated with him, because what we basically have is a criminal syndicate occupying the White House. Politically, uh, they're an autocracy, but their main goal, what kind of drives their moves, is greed, is the accumulation of money. A lot of things can go wrong there. Right now, they're cutting all these kleptocratic deals. It's working out pretty well for the Trump family. What usually happens if you look at kleptocracies, and you certainly see this in Central Asia and in Russia, are a bunch of elites kind of scrambling at each other and cutting each other out. And I could eventually see people getting pretty fed up with Trump and Kushner and pushing them out. That's still a horrible situation because that means we're not living in a democracy. That means they're living in a country where resources are just sort of stripped down and taken by a cabal um, of elite kleptocrats. I think that that's a possibility. The other thing that worries me about Trump and like the eight year or more plan are stuff like wars, um, nuclear war, which he has been fond of and has said he's you know in favor of preemptive nuclear strikes. That's something that genuinely frightens me. And also just systemic problems like climate change that 
you know, are not being resolved. We needed someone to actually work on them and resolve them and will lead to new kinds of crises that we haven't seen before. So I don't know. I mean, I hope he gets out of there. There's also the possibility that he just gets fed up with the whole thing. Like if he's actually not making money and is really afraid of going to jail, he might just like hit the road. But then, I mean, seriously, he might actually leave and flee. Um, but then, you know, you have the danger of a successor. And so, you know, I guess if I want to leave a message here, like, Trump is a problem, but Trumpism and authoritarianism and white supremacy, these are all problems that can be encapsulated in another person who is maybe smarter, maybe slicker, more bureaucratic. So you got to watch out for all these people and not just Trump. So sorry, that's a depressing response. But, Thank yeah. you. But he might die. So. <laughs> um, hi. Uh, so... When you're talking about institutions, uh, that is very uh, striking to me because um, as a recent college grad, most of my peers uh, voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary and potentially in the general, but that's a whole thing. Um, and one, the reason that most of them gave was that um, Hillary was exactly the same as Trump, which is, again, a whole other thing. But what that really reflected um, in my um, in my questions was that um, people were generally just very fed up with with the institutions that we have um, and how they've kind of been capitalized. Um, and so you can see that in a lot of in the rhetoric uh, towards um, Democrats, especially Nancy Pelosi. There's a whole lot of sexism in there, too, but um, et cetera. And that got me to thinking about how um, it is very difficult for uh, lots of marginalized peoples to trust in the institutions of America because um they are they are built on white supremacy. They are built on misogyny and homophobia and xenophobia and, you know, go down the list. And so as best case scenario, we come out of this in X a number of years and we start sort of rebuilding, I guess, our country. And I don't mean that literally, hopefully. <laughs> but in your opinion, what are some ways that we as a country um, and not just as, you know, landowning white men who own slaves, uh, how can how can we build a better country that whose values and whose institutions actually reflect the peop, the most marginalized people? Right. No, that's a great question, because, you know, some of the stuff that, that Trump is doing in this administration is, is new. A lot of it is just building on, you know, foundational flaws and atrocities that have been baked into the U.S. Uh, since the beginning. You know, a lot of authoritarian policies were passed under our democratic uh, pretenses. You know, Jim Crow, slavery, genocide of Native Americans, internment camps. Uh, I can go on and on. So what we have now is an administration just bringing those things back. In terms of, you know, people not having trust in institutions, I feel like that is a healthy thing, um, you know, if you are recognizing the deficiencies, recognizing the flaws, and demanding accountability, demanding transparency, and demanding your right as citizens. You know, we have public officials who are elected to serve us. We are their bosses, whether they like it or not. What I don't like seeing a lot of the time uh, is cynicism about this, this kind of throwing your hands in the air and being like, oh, they're all the same. Oh, nothing changes. Oh, it's it's the system. And, you know, the thing is, people are suffering in the system. And there is always a worse option. If 2016 has taught us anything, is that things can always get worse. And the reason you don't want things to get worse is because people suffer and die. There would be 
lives that are that would have been saved had Hillary won. We also would have had many of the same structural problems had Hillary won. Those would not have gone away. But I think you know you need to look out for the people who are the worst off. I think if you sort of frame it as who's suffering, who's abetting that suffering, how do we help those who are suffering, that gives you a moral framework to kind of navigate a country where you know law seems to apparently have no meaning um, and institutionals can't be trusted. But I think you know. Um, I think anger is a healthy emotion. I think it's a really normal thing right now to be furious, and it often can kind of motivate you and keep you going. But kind of apathy, cynicism, you know, which I do see among young people, like I get why people feel like that, but it will defeat you. And I think some of this is, you know, I live in Missouri where we have policies like you would not believe. We have the legislature lowering the minimum wage um, by $2.65. We have uh, your boss can now fire you if he knows you're on birth control pills. Uh, my governor is, you know, should be impeached because, uh, you know, the whole legislature wants to impeach him and is hanging on like a tyrant after tying up women in his basement to exercise equipment and photographing them half nude. And not, nothing's, I mean, it's just, it's such a nightmare. Like Missouri, everybody who says it can't happen in America, like it's happened in Missouri and it's happening there now. And so I have this sort of perspective of, okay, like our Democrats are problematic, <laughs> they're not great, but when you got the GOP running this stuff, it really can get a hell of a lot worse. Like I would like our minimum wage to go back up, for example, that made a concrete difference in people's life. So yeah, I think, you know, try to alleviate suffering, I guess would be my guide and work together collectively in that and stay mad, so. Hello. Uh, I have four questions, but they're very concise. <laughs> Okay. Great. Is one of them actually a statement so I can feel like I'm back in academia? No, just kidding. Go. <laughs> no, I, I've tried to prepare. Uh, so how many languages do you speak? Uh, well, there's studied and speak. Um, I mean, at this point, like Uzbek is probably the one I, I speak best, but I've studied like six or seven over the last, I don't know, 25 years, 20 years. Like yeah, I'm just curious. Yeah. I haven't heard you talk about that. Uh, uh, what's your favorite song to play on the piano? On the piano, um, there's a Chopin song. I used to play classical piano. Um, got it. It's in the movie, the TV movie of The Secret Garden that came out in the late 80s. Anyway, <laughs> I used to play this, and I, now I'm forgetting the name, but I won piano competitions with it. Um, and if you uh, look it up, I, it's like number 72. Anyway, go on. <laughs> number three. Uh, I have a friend who's a journalist in the Raleigh-Durham area. Uh, what should I talk to him about in his off hours? And who, that's what? What should I talk to him about in his off hours? Uh, wherever, whatever you want. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know your friend and I don't know you. Well, so, so uh, in relation to like just the downhill trend of journalism. Oh, like, um, I mean, I would hear him out about what he's going through and what kind of problems people are facing. I mean, I brought up the media before as being kind of complicit in Trump and didn't really say why. Why is that uh, they don't have any money? And because that's another industry that's really just tanked um, since the recession, but also beforehand with the rise of the internet. And so you see a lot of people morally compromising themselves um, in order to stay in there. But, you know, everybody's got their own story and I don't know what he would be going through. So I would just hear him out. And last one, uh, what are the most important lyrics in hard rock? Oh, everything Guns N' Roses did. <laughs> I love Guns N' Roses. So, um, because I, uh, the person before me on this side also uh, asked like 50% of my question, I'll change it up a bit. Uh, for your, from your perspective as an authoritarian scholar, 
So I worked on a documentary recently about a guy who saved Jews from the Holocaust from a country in Eastern Europe that uh, was sandwiched between the Nazis and the Soviets and chose to join the Axis. Uh, and then the Soviets used his actions in saving those Jews against him at his trial in order to deport him to Siberia. And just this morning, uh, before I even knew you were going to be here, uh, I saw that this municipality where he was from just put up a monument with like an iron cross on it that immortalizes the soldiers who died fighting the Soviets. And so to me, like, that's an instance of cultural rot preceded by several decades of institutional rot. So from your perspective, I'm wondering if you have any examples of countries that have culturally rebounded from authoritarian rule. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's depressed me about recent world events is that we have many countries that rebounded from authoritarian rule and are now going back uh, to authoritarian rule. You know, in, in the early 90s, um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, about half the Soviet Union stayed authoritarian, certainly the areas I studied in Central Asia did, but, you know, the um, Baltic states, you know, they've remained democracies, and the Warsaw Pact countries became democracies and, you know, were able to reclaim their religion, their language, their culture, all these things for the first time operate independently. Now some of the most repressive countries in Europe are those same states, you know, certainly Hungary, Poland has moved in that direction. Um, and I think, you know, Russia has rebuilt its relationship with them, which is just unbelievable. You know, they were the people who had sent tanks in, um, you know, in the Soviet era. Um, and so, yeah, it's a back and forth process. That's why I think you can never take any of our freedoms for granted. You know, last year, because I had predicted Trump, I got invited to all these countries around the world who wanted to know, will we meet this unfortunate fate? And I was like, yeah, you possibly could. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to be invited back, I think. Um, but, you know, it, it can happen anywhere um, if people don't try to fix these structural problems, if people don't look out uh, for corruption, um, if people don't address it, and if you also don't address things like mass youth unemployment, lack of opportunity, all the things that make a demagogue more alluring. Um, at the same time though, you know, we've, I, I've lived long enough to watch this back and forth and I'm hoping it'll flip again, um, but I think that the problems we're facing now are new. I think that digital media has changed uh, any kind of historical comparison that we can make. If you're going to look back at the Nazi era, the Soviet era, they didn't have this system. They didn't have this capacity of surveillance. They didn't have this kind of transnational um, alliances that can work either for good or evil. So, so it's hard to tell where things are going. It'll be a new and exciting uh, thing to see. <laughs> Hi, Sarah. Um, big fan of your tweets. Um, my question relates to online propaganda, which you mentioned earlier. And from my observations, it seems to contribute to people kind of staying in their own bubble in their head and doubling down on mistaken beliefs or any kind of bad faith in their head. Um, what do you think is the best way for people to break out of that or, to, or how you can help persuade someone to think differently? Um, those are sort of two different questions. How to, how to break out of it. Like, we need to start teaching people, your kids, if 
that's who's learning, like civics, although adults need to you know, have a crash course in civics, and media literacy and critical thinking. I mean, it's a hard thing, because on one hand, I don't want to say distrust everything you read, because that feeds into a kind of paranoia and cynicism that makes you know, information and the pursuit of truth so overwhelming that people won't do it. On the other hand, I don't think you should accept anything at face value when you know you're being bombarded with propaganda. And the best way to kind of um, ascertain whether what you're seeing is accurate and um, informative is to spend a lot of time reading. Who has the time to do that? You know, people have to work. So I would just say, try to do the best you can. I think as you know, we continue to function in this environment, you know, initially people had to kind of adjust to the fact that this government was going to lie so constantly, so blatantly. I mean, every administration lies, but not like the Trump administration. And now we kind of know that he's just going to come out and say the thing that you see right in front of you, a crowd size, for example, is not real. Like, you know, and, and try to you know, make you feel like you're losing your mind, like you're losing your, your grasp on reality. What was the second part of your question? <laughs> because um, I've now forgotten. Just in terms of um, people in your direct environment. Um, oh, how to reach out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, my direct environment is Missouri, and you get all sorts of different uh, opinions out there. You know, I, I, if I find somebody that I disagree with on most things, I try to start out finding common ground on, like, the one thing that we do agree with. And often that issue is corruption. It's often, um, you know, billionaires and money in politics and people doing that. There's a break in who we think is corrupt and in who we think you know, is causing the problem or holds the power. But I think that Americans as a whole are, are really fed up with that. People are fed up with feeling powerless. They're fed up with feeling like if you have enough money, you can buy anything, including the law. So that's sometimes common ground. Another uh, common ground has actually been uh, the environment. Like I've had good conversations with people who voted for Trump on that, who just like our state parks and our national parks and are kind of like, you know, what's going on with that? Like, are we losing these things? So sometimes if you start and find common ground, then you can kind of branch out because that person will just trust you a little more, trust you're trying to have a conversation uh, in good faith instead of an argument. Um, I, I just have a couple of questions here. Um, so Sarah, the, the last couple of essays in your book, it, it kind of triggered something in me because I used to study with a guy named Neil Postman um, up in, at NYU. And Neil wrote uh, Disappearance of Childhood. He wrote Technopoly, uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And, and, and you seem to, to, to shift into, in, into some, you know, somewhat more of this media ecological approach. So Postman was always concerned, and this goes back to TV and the impact of TV and lack of context and information about you know, what he called the assault on, on the pillars of American uh, culture. So had, are you familiar with his work? And, and did you, I mean, you responded to something I posted in a tweet. I know that's kind of a, a dangler, but are you familiar with Postman's work at all? And, and with Amusing Ourselves you? to Death, yeah, okay. but only that one. Okay, because I, I, would, I would tell everyone, read Technopoly, because I, I saw a great mirror that, you know, between your work and, and Postman, and I think he needs to be rediscovered. And so having said that, my second question is, um, who had the right to be offended by Melissa Wolf's comments at the White House press? At, at the, who had the right to be offended? A lot of people were offended. The press were offended. The Trump administration were offended. Her comments blasted everybody. And, and, and I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. I mean, everyone has the right to be offended. I mean, that's your, your right. You can choose to be offended if you want to by anything. Um, I okay, think there's so one. Let me rephrase. Were you offended by her comments? No, I thought she was great. Okay, that's what I was trying to get to. Thank you. <laughs> I, I liked her. <laughs> I went on a 
MSNBC and, and the next day and debated their anchors who were very offended by her comments and somehow were offended by me liking her comments. Okay, thank you. I, I thought I she was great. I don't really know why. That that clip is on there. Um, I, I can't remember who I, who I talked to exactly. But anyway, um, yeah, I, I thought, you know, the, the press was offended because she attacked them. I don't think it had to do with the, the Sarah Huckabee Sanders stuff, although there is this kind of brigade of access journalists who will do anything and just, you know, kiss everybody's ass. And I don't know what the purpose of access journal journalism is. You know, when you're perpetually lied to, when you're helping a kleptocracy thrive, why would you do that? You should be helping the public. You should be informing the public. They don't want to do that. I think that uh, Michelle Wolf really held them to task and was saying, hey, this is actually pretty good for you. You know, you're making your money now. You're getting your clicks. You're getting your cash. And I had warned about that situation myself way back in, you know, February 2016. I wrote about this, you know, mutually exploitative relationship that Trump and the press had, had entered into. And, you know, I talk about this, but I think there's kind of a, a D.C. political class that doesn't like to talk about this out loud. Like she said the quiet part out loud. I thought it was very funny. I thought she was very funny. I'm totally going to watch her show. So she's a new fan of me. But I, I might be, uh, I don't know, other some, some other journalists did like it, but they're definitely it was interesting to see who didn't. I'll just put it that way. Great, thank you. <laughs> so um, I think one of the good things that have come out of this whole mess is the misogyny denial has a big crack in it in this country. And <clears throat> you were talking about your desperate and futile attempt to get the country to listen to you um, prior to the election. And my question is, do you think your work would have gotten a different reception if you'd been a man. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the adjectives that people would use to describe me, you know, hysterical, emotional, like I'm not that emotional. If anything, I'm kind of known for being a little bit cold but you know, to my to my friends. And, you know, um, they if a woman is saying it, they will take it less seriously and they'll think that you're having some sort of personal freak out. It doesn't matter how much expertise you have. It doesn't matter, you know, that you're going off of um, Trump's own comments off of things in the public domain that can be objectively examined. Um, yeah, it, it has been the other thing, and I don't mean to generalize about men, but I think if you're, you know, a white guy from a wealthy background in a kind of insular protected profession, which I would say kind of describes the DC media, um, you're looking at things like a horse race. You're not looking at things about how people experience them in everyday life. You are less likely to think that the system is going to crash and burn because you yourself are so much in that system that you can't kind of see it from the outside. And I think women, generally speaking, you know, we see things from the outside more and we're often put in these roles as caretakers, as people who kind of have to envision what is the worst thing that can happen at any given moment to prevent it. And so people will interpret that as pessimism. I don't think it's pessimism. I think it's pragmatism. And I think that a lot of the, the activism you're seeing coming out of women's movements, um, and I do think that women are dominating you know, the protest movements and the on-the-ground activism and the election campaigns and all this stuff, um, and it's often kind of low-key, you know, the media doesn't always pick up on it, is because of that necessary pragmatism. It's like, well, we got to just deal with this. We can't just imagine and theorize and, you know, and there are men doing this too. I'm not trying to like trash men. There are lots of men who are, you know, very active in this as well. But I do think there's a tendency for women to assume that the worst thing can really happen because so often it has happened to us. Yeah. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for coming to DC. It was related to the last gentleman's question. Uh, so it's probably partially answered, but I just wanted to understand it a bit more clearly from you. 
uh, on sort of access journalism and how you've kind of railed against it recently and a lot of it's come to the fore from the Mich Michelle Wolf uh, stuff and then also I've seen it in the in the sort of way in uh, which um, your interviews with um, you know Mika and, and Joe you know weren't they, they looked on the edge of their chairs during it why does that exist I mean I, I come from the UK you can probably hear I've been here for 10 years and there's no I've, I've tried to look everywhere and there doesn't seem to be a culture of attack dog journalists or, or reporters who will ask a very aggressive question and they'll be lied to back and they, there's just no follow-up it's all softball after softball after softball and you must know people like Jeremy Paxman yeah okay it's very irritating in some respects but at least there's a sort of holding to account element and is it because of this sort of uh, access journalism is it just general reverence for for you know elected officials what yeah, is it, it, it why does it happen it's frustrating because, yeah. I mean, the only thing I can kind of see that the <coughs> access journalists are getting out of it is careerism, opportunism. Right. But it, that's a short term view, because when you are moving towards a bird, you know, towards an autocracy, which we are, freedom yeah. of the press is not going to be around. Yeah. Like you'll get your book out and then maybe someone will burn it and then that will be the end of you. And, you know, I, access journalism is only useful if you're willing to burn that bridge at the end, if you're willing to get on the inside and then inform people about what's actually going on. And then, of course, you lose your access. I don't know why they're so cowardly uh, at those White House press briefings. They have lots of opportunities. I mean, part of it is like trying to get the truth out of Sarah Huckabee Sanders is a pretty futile yeah. enterprise. But those press briefings also serve another purpose, which is to pose questions that the whole American public can hear and kind of know what are the pressing issues that we need to understand. Some journalists, there are a few that, that are pushing back, like April Ryan is one that pushes back. You know, there are some that are trying to hold them accountable. But um, it's frustrating. And I think, you know, you do have people who are basically functioning as court stenographers and propagandists uh, of their own choice. You also see a lot of journalists being threatened. You you've seen Trump try to blackmail people. I mean, Mika and Joe uh, frustrated the hell out of me during the campaign. I mean, they really yeah. bolstered him up. He was threatening and blackmailing them on Twitter. He was like, mm -hmm. I'm going to tell everyone, you know, your secret stuff. What kind of confused me is that we all knew <laughs> their secret, you know, that they were dating each other. Yeah. Like it wasn't, it was like the worst kept secret. So I don't know exactly what he had over them, but he had something on them. And that's alarming. His threats on the press are real. And as much as the access journalists and the kind of, you know, uh, sycophantic elements of the press annoy me, we need to unite as one in the media because the threat to the First Amendment is very real. And I wish that people realized that and weren't trying to basically dig their own grave by facilitating uh, this regime. So, but but yeah. is it going to happen? I mean, that's the thing. You don't really see I any evidence know. of it still sort of I feel fighting like over each other to they, ask It's like question. they have these it's, moments yeah. of revelation when something really atrocious happens, like when Charlottesville <laughs> happened, um, when Comey got fired. You know, there's mm. a sort of moment of like, oh my God, you know, it's real. Yeah. It really is an autocracy. He really is a white supremacist. I mean, the fact that it took them so long to say that Donald Trump is a white supremacist, that Donald Trump is corrupt. I mean, these are not revelations. This is stuff I knew yeah. when I was like nine years old and like the Central Park Five were, you know, out getting pillared in the press and Trump was going bankrupt like every five minutes. I mean, this is just not, this is not shocking information. They all should have known that. Sometimes I'd be challenged by these journalists. I'd say things like Trump has actually had a relationship with uh, Russia in the Soviet era and then also in the 90s and they funded a lot of his businesses. And they're like, that's a tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, Sarah. Where are you getting that? I'm like, your paper. Your paper from when you used to report things in the 80s and in the 90s like it is all there it's in the village voice it's in newsweek it's in the washington post 
there's just a refusal to see it. And I don't know whether it's fear or favor. And I don't know when it'll change. I sometimes feel like it might change when it's, they realize it's really too late. And that's, that is a frightening prospect. Thank you very much. Just gauging time, we might only have time for the next three questions. Just wanted to put that out there. Hi, Sarah. Uh, my name is Randy, and I wanted to first off, like, I'm a fellow Midwesterner and a fellow anthropologist as well, so I wanted to thank you for putting the things that I grew up seeing, uh, like, far more eloquently than I could have ever tried to, so I have something to point at now. Oh, sorry. Is it, even is it on? on? Oh, yeah, that definitely makes a difference. Hi. Um, yeah, so I, my question is... Um, Throughout your book, and I think this is a, a really serious issue, is the, the concentration of uh, elites in important institutions such as academia or journalism, uh, where you're being priced out if you don't come from a wealthy family. Um, we're in this era now that, like, it's been described as a second gilded era. I think it's more appropriate to call it, like, a FU I got mine era. Uh, what do you think we can do from an individual or a policy perspective to try to reverse that trend? Because it, it, without those institutions being representative of the people, then they're, they're essentially useless. Yeah, I mean, part of it is just perception. I mean, it, this is an FU era. This is a, a gilded age. This is an era of corruption. And I think part of the problem as this was building is that it was played down. You know, you'd hear things like, oh, unemployment is low, the recession has ended, blah, blah, blah. Nobody was really feeling that. So I think you need a change in perception and then you need to dig deep. We need better investigative reporting. We need people to root out corruption in different corporations, in the government, which is now in tandem with these various corporations, in the mafia-like criminal syndicates that are dominating this. Like this all needs to be brought out um, into the fore. I don't know if that will actually change anything, but it's important that people know. People need to have an understanding of what is happening, why it feels like it's out of our control, before they can, you know, do anything to solve it. Although one thing is, you know, if you want to try to make a change again, look on a local level because you're more likely to reform like your city council than you are to reform the White House or something or a local business versus a giant conglomerate. So that, that's one way to start. So uh, when you have six corporations that own 90% of all media outlets, when you have a former president that calls us an oligarchy, when you have quality journalists like Chris Hedges, and Seymour Hirsch relegated to the sidelines, not allowed to, you know, this stuff doesn't appear in, in mainstream press. When you have a completely dysfunctional two-party system that's completely corporatized, how can you, uh, isn't, isn't it going to be necessary to have a completely new political party or platform to address these problems? Uh, how are we gonna stop this race to the bottom otherwise? I mean, I think it's probably likely that over the next few years, over the next decade, new political parties may emerge. I think it's possible that both parties may split. You're already seeing a departure from the Republican Party. And, you know, these people who don't, you know, they call themselves never Trump Republicans and they don't know where to go. And there's also an immense frustration in the Democratic Party. I don't think the two party system is healthy. Um, but I do think when you have a new party forming, it needs to be an organic process. I get freaked out when I see a sort of top down building of a political movement, when there are people with a lot of money and power saying, I'm going to start this, this group, I'm going to do that. Because it's the same abuse of power. There's that same possibility. And that's what freaks me out more than any kind of ideological direction are small groups of people saying, I will call the shots. I will say what we're going to do. And you all are my foot soldiers and you're going to do it. So I'm hoping that whatever changes we see, you know, will be 
coming from the ground up. And I do think that we're seeing it already because people are sick of this and people are aware of that. And I think they're more inclined to act because of that. It seems that the Democrats are fully on board with this kind of state of permanent warfare that we've kind of lurched into and, and, and show no signs of pulling away from. I, I think mean, it depends on which Democrat you're talking about. I mean, I think there's, you know. Well, the establishment Democrats. Well, I don't know who that is. I mean, <laughs> there's a spectrum. I think some of them certainly are on board. I mean, you can look at the votes for, you know, Gina Haspel or people like that, and you see Democrats jumping on there, you know, who certainly could have abstained. Then you do see people speaking out. And I think, you know, look at people at indiv- as individuals, look at their voting records, look at what they actually stand for, and then, you know, proceed from there. So if we move quickly, we can take the, the last three questions. Okay. So one, two, and three. This is a pretty much a yes and no answer, and I kind of fear the answer. But um, you said that you were the Cassandra over the last election cycle that nobody listened to. Do you think people are listening to you now? Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> we're very small. We're watching uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the point where they stop, where everyone's like, remember that funny book that was about awful stuff? We're like, I, my dream is for my kids to grow up, read that book, be like, oh, my God, mom, like you thought things were going to be so horrible. And we turned it around. That That's my dream is to go out of date. So, okay. yeah. All right. Hey, Sarah. Huge fan, fellow St. Louisan. Oh, hey, with Central Road, too. <laughs> um, so what's always spoke to me most strongly in all your work is your discussion about how like you need to have money as an entry point to so many careers these days? You know, unpaid internships, adjunct positions, non-stipendary fellows. Um, do you see a way around that? I mean, as a country. Um, Well, yeah, people have to stop doing it. I mean, actually, there has been pushback against this uh, since the time that I wrote these essays, especially in media. On social media, people began calling out all of these companies. They began raising hell when an unpaid internship was offered or when, you know, there were auctions for internships where you had to literally pay to take a job. Mm -hmm. You know, people made enough of a fuss, caused enough of a scandal that these companies became embarrassed. And so that public shaming can actually be really viable. You know, lately there's been this, oh, we shouldn't shame people on the internet. I'm like, if you're a giant corporation, you can handle the shame. And then you can change your practices. And, and that's most that's what I encourage people to do. Hi, Sarah. I'm your cousin. <laughs> I'm not this is my cousin, you. Abby. Hello. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you the silly question I said I was. But <laughs> first, thank you for um, you know making our family proud. But I also wanted to ask, as you know, our um, great-grandparents immigrated here at the turn of the last century um, from Poland which, given the state of the society and the government that they left, what do you think they'd be thinking right now? I mean, I I think they'd be really sad because I remember when I went to Poland, you know, because my grandparents didn't ever go themselves. It was just their parents who, who came from there. When I went to Poland in the late 90s, it was a newly free country. And you know how my grandma was. She slept with a picture of the Pope <laughs> next to her bed. You know, like she, she, was pretty, she was pretty psyched that I went there and that Poland was the way it was. I think she would be incredibly distressed um, by what happened to Poland. I think she'd be much more distressed uh, by what's happened to America. I mean, right before she died in 2003, she was maligning the Iraq war. And she was like, Sarah, this is not going to work out how they're saying it is. This is a disaster. Do not listen to anybody about this and and it's not like my grandma was some kind of radical like I just said you know she <laughs> slept with the next to a picture of the Pope I was kind of glad she didn't live to see Martha Stewart go to jail I mean you know she's like this nice <laughs> woman who, who planted flowers and was really like even tempered and stuff but she caught on to this because she grew up in the Great Depression she grew up you know she saw Nazi Germany she saw these things and you know, and, and our grandfather is someone who, you know, they didn't have education but managed to work their way up and they would be mad that we didn't have those opportunities. So yeah, 
they, they, they would be distressed. So I think it's just our obligation as the new Kenziers to fight this and make it better for you know, our, our progeny. And then one last question from me. Who should we be reading? What should we be reading? Who should we be following? Oh gosh, well, I like to encourage everyone to make up their own minds. I mean, people are always asking me what to read, and I'm like, you need to explore and read broadly. But topic-wise, um, this is the exact same thing I said on November 9th, 2016. Read about authoritarianism worldwide, about historical antecedents, about recent countries that have switched in that direction, like Turkey, Hungary, Poland. How does that process happen? Read about authoritarian tendencies that are historically entrenched in the United States, especially having to do with racism. Look at how those policies were enacted, because again, especially with Jeff Sessions as the Attorney General, you're going to see this. We now have you know immigrant children being put on military bases and separate from their parents like these things have come to pass and then also research uh, the infotainment complex the media complex that helps kind of sugarcoat this and try to convince you that it's not as horrifying you know Neil Postman was brought up go read him and educate yourself about all that combine it together and you get the Trump administration and then you can form your own guidelines um, on where to go forward from there thank you so much Live at Politics and Prose is a co-production of The Bookstore and Slate.com. For information about upcoming Politics and Prose events, visit politics-prose.com. And please let us know what you think of this program. Our email is podcasts at slate.com.